Hey all you sweet and semi-sweet meats, welcome to another episode of Boys Are From Martin, a women in beer podcast. On this episode, I am joined with kind of a different guest than I'm normally uh, that I normally have. I'm joined with Gillian Larson. She is a adventure ambassador for Firestone Walk around California. Um, and she is what they call a through rider. So someone who rides, um, essentially they ride horses along these huge trails. Um, she has completed both the Pacific Crest Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, um, which are trails from Canada to or I'm sorry, they go Mexico to Canada. So it was a really interesting conversation with her and how she ended up partnering with Firestone Walker out in California. But before we get to that, let's do the two things I start every podcast with. Um, so one of the beers that I had this week that I really enjoyed was I Don't Like Mondays by Fat Orange Cat Brew Company. Um, I believe they're out of um, East Hampton, Massachusetts. Um, I'm not... East Hampton, Connecticut. I'm sorry, wrong state. Um, so it's just a New England style IPA that they brewed with Galaxy Mosaic and some goat hops. It's a beer that I've seen on the shelf multiple times that I wanted to try. So I was glad I grabbed it and I thoroughly enjoyed that. And then one thing in craft beer that I really uh, enjoyed this week that I read was a story on porch drinking. Um, it's It was titled Mental Health and Beer, Things We Don't Say IPA. So um, basically Malt Europe Malty Company Hollingberry and Sun Tops, Eagle Park Brewing, and Hope for the Day have kickstarted a collaboration beer, kind of like those Black is Beautiful ones that we saw. Um, I voted today beer called, it's a collaboration beer called Things We Don't Say IPA, an attempt to make mental health um, a more common discussion in, you know, just in craft beer, but just, you know, in life. And so, um, simply, it's just asking people to make or enjoy the beer. Um, just to raise awareness for mental health, um, like I said, in craft beer and just in general. Um, I'm trying to find the description of the beer. So here we go. It's a 6% um, double dry hopped IPA with Azaka, El Dorado, and Cashmere hops with malt provided by Malt Europe and hops from obviously Hollingberry and Sons and Hops. So go check out that story on porch drinking to read more about it and then uh, follow follow along to see what breweries participate in that collaboration. Now let's get to the interview with Gillian. It was one of the most interesting interviews I've done. I learned so much, so I think you will too. Enjoy. everybody i am joined with gillian larson uh gillian joins me from i think california is that correct it is yeah the central coast ah that you know we've been dealing with some ice and snow the past couple weeks so uh california sounds really nice right now um yeah we, we have not had a winter so i don't even know what that's like this year uh very very jealous but i will you know um you're on with me because you are in an ambassador uh, one of the ambassadors for Firestone Walker out in California. And, um, but I'll let you kind of describe what you do. You're a, a ride through writer. Is that the correct way to, to, to describe yourself? Or it's sort of one of the made up terms. Okay. I don't know if you can really get it wrong. <laughs> um, but uh, it's like through rider. Through riding. Really, yeah, it's like, it's basically, you know, piggybacked off of the term through hiker, which is much more common. Um, and people might know that one a lot more from the long distance trails, like the Appalachian Trail mm -hmm. and the Pacific Crest Trail. So that's a little more 
broadly known. And so, you know, there's not a lot of horseback riders and we just kind of like piggybacked off of them. So what is a through rider? Um, a through rider is basically completing a set designated trail um, in its entirety within kind of like one season. Like most of these backcountry trails, you know, you don't want to be doing them in the winter. So they kind of have like a narrow window in which you can complete them. And so if you complete all of it within that window, it's a through ride and they can be, you know, short, like the Colorado Trail is 500 miles, or they can be very long, like the Continental Divide Trail, which is like 3000 miles. I love how you say that 500 miles is short. It is all, all relative. <laughs> so let's start from the let's start from the beginning. How did you get into through riding and just I guess riding horses in the first place? Um, definitely got into the horses because my mom she was um, did dressage, and you know as a very little kid, you know it was a regular occurrence to go to the barn with my mom, and especially when I was really young, you know like a little babysitter, and it was kind of a nice way for the babysitter to you know not have to entertain me and just make sure, you know, I die. Um, and so I was always like around at the barn, you know, bring carrots, feed the horses. So that's always was in my lifestyle. And then at very young age, my mom found a little pony. Like when I was four, you know, she borrowed it from a friend and she would basically just plop me on this pony. It was too small to even have a saddle. And, you know, she, I don't even remember learning like the basics of riding, like steering or anything like that. But I do remember being four years old and just like tootling around the uh, like facilities of the barn on my own, completely unsupervised, you know, just riding around on this little like white pony, you know, something out of like one of those kids books that you would imagine. And so I, I don't remember literally not knowing how to ride I just that's my earliest memories are like riding uh so one of the things I thought was kind of funny about your story is I read that you you took your horses to college with you obviously most people take cars computers whatever you took you took your horses with you so talk about how you were able to do that um was it part of your program at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo is that how you say it Almost San Luis Obispo. So it's a little okay. less fancy. <laughs> so yeah, why why did you want to take your horses with you to college? Um, I, I had the horses. Um, I basically I got my first horse when I was seven. Um, and then you know I got another horse when I was thirteen, and she had a baby, and so I had these three horses that I was very attached to. Um, the one who I'd had since I was seven, he was much 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 older, so he you know didn't survive all of my college years because he was elderly at that point. But, um, but when I was going in high school, you know, considering college, you know, a big thing for me was wanting to not be separated from my horses. And it's unfortunately a big decision that a lot of kids who grew up with horses have to make at some point Mm -hmm. um, about like choosing between horses and college. And my mom had to really was limited in her decisions when she wanted to go to college um, because she didn't want to give up her horse and she didn't have, you know, any kind of support in making that decision. And and for a lot of students, that is a very difficult um, time. And I was really fortunate. I had a very supportive mom who wanted to help make it happen, but obviously you're still somewhat limited in terms of where you can go. You're obviously not going to go to college in the city. So definitely taking courses was a big determining factor in terms of where I was going to go. Like I Mm -hmm. had to be a place where I could have horses nearby or, and be rideable. And so, you know, when we would do the college tours, 
it was definitely one day spent looking at the university and then another day spent looking at like the horse facilities and you know checking out local boarding places and that was definitely factored into my choice to come to San Luis Obispo was because it you know it was um, thankfully also like the cheaper of my choices. So that was an extra bonus, but it had a lot of riding trails on campus. And if they even had a way for you to board your horses on campus and you were allowed to ride on the, you know, the cow pastures and all their grazing lands, um, where, where a lot of normal students like, you know, do mountain biking and trail running. And so it's a very unusual campus in that it has so much land that they use for you know a lot of their agricultural courses and the extra bonus of you know boarding your horses on campus or at the rodeo unit so it's an unusual school and you know definitely stuck out in terms of make, meeting all of my needs and you know was kind of an obvious choice given what I was looking for. Yeah, I kind of could understand or relate to some of the stuff you said, obviously, being here in Kentucky and the two big schools. Darn it, darn you, internet. Oh, you're fine. Uh, Sorry, I lost you there. It froze on my end. I was like, darn you, internet, why? (laughs) I know, I have to turn off all the other Wi-Fi stuff on my uh, my, my phone, all that stuff. But I could kind of relate to what you're saying with... uh, I live in like a rural area and the internet is so sketchy in this like part of the 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 state (laughs) we'll get through but yeah people people coming to school because of horses so on that instance I was like oh I completely understand while that wasn't me there's a lot of people I met who came to Kentucky um because of horses obviously so after college um this is really when you started getting into the through riding on some of these trails and then we've got to talk about this because I find it super fascinating is you became the youngest woman to solo ride through the the Pacific Crest Trail, which covers 26 or 2,650 miles from Mexico to Canada. You did this in 2014, right after college. I did. So two things. For me, who's someone who's not familiar with the Pacific Crest Trail, talk about what, talk about that trail itself and what it was like to be, you know, a young, you know, you're still, you're probably 22, 23, um, to be doing that on your own. And what, how did you prepare for it? So kind of, there's a bunch of questions, so you can, uh, (laughs) I'll I'll try to cover, cover all of them. Yeah, let's start with, explain (laughs) what the Pacific Crest Trail is and, you know, why it's one of the big ones to complete. It is, yeah, there's a, there's like three big, you know, national scenic trails in the States, um, kind of like one on each coast and one in like basically the middle. So you have the Pacific Crest Trail, the Continental Divide Trail and the Appalachian Trail. And so the Pacific Crest Trail is the like West Coast side. Um, and they basically, a lot of these trails, they go, you know, north south um, direction because that's like where the mountain ranges are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, they're much more kind of like beautiful. You know, it's not like, a, you know, not to harp on Kansas, but it's not like you're just like cutting through the flatlands. It's a little bit more scenic in the, in the mountains and with that kind of topography. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the trails basically kind of follow these mountain ranges. And so the Pacific Crest Trail follows a lot of like the Cascades um, and the Sierra Nevadas. And so it's a lot of up and down is what it's like out there and very rocky. Um, but very beautiful because you are, you know, up so high and have so much elevation and it is such, you know, rugged mountainous country. And then, okay. So then we'll go back to being the, the, the youngest woman to solo ride through that. What, 
you know, what was some of the challenges you faced as this being your first one and your first, the first, the big one? You, did you just go right into the big one or did you do smaller trails to prepare for it? It would have been smart to do smaller trails. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I didn't, it wasn't entirely my choice to do it that way. I learned about the existence of the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, my senior, like right before my, you know, last, you know, time in, in college that summer before. And so I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And I was, you know, at that time, I thought it was going to be a one-off. And I had this like one window between the summer of undergrad and going to grad school and then becoming, you know, a more conventional um, adult. And so I thought I had one chance to do it. And so there really wasn't a lot of opportunities to, to train while being, you know, finishing up school. And then I had one of my horses was recovering from an injury. And so that, you know, couldn't prepare her basically at all. And it was even you know, up until basically like two even weeks before I left, it was still on the fence of whether we were even going to go. It was, you know, is she going to be up for it? Like I remember, you know, one of my, I had a little website at the time where I was doing a blog to try to document it. And I remember even saying, you know, like having a lot of asterisks in there of like, may not happen, totally might not happen guys. Like still don't know if it's happening. And so it was all very just, you know, kind of a miracle when we turned up at the Mexican border and, you know, it was like, okay, well, here we go. <laughs> um, and I, I, the closest I can come to kind of like describing what it was like was it was so much unknown. There wasn't a lot of documentation. It, it, you would hear, you could find stuff on the internet that basically described someone started and someone finished, but you had no idea what the in-between was. And so I knew it was possible, but I really didn't know how. I didn't understand that. There was not really any information. And so it was almost like, what I would imagine, you know, traveling to another country would be like if you had no books or internet and mm -hmm. you were kind of just like, you knew it was going to be different and you just didn't have any reference point for what that difference was going to be. And I just knew it was going to be hard, but I didn't understand how and what ways it was going to be challenging. So it was a lot of unknowns. And I remember like my, my motto being like, my expectation is to have no expectations other than it's going to be harder than I expect, which sounds a little odd, but that was it. All I knew was it was going to be harder than I could imagine and challenging in ways that I couldn't even comprehend at that point due to my enormous lack of experience in that like area. So it was basically an entire, you know, fly by the seat of my pants, you know, take it day by day and just, you know, hope that I could remain adaptive and, you know, overcome stuff as they popped up. And I think I want to reiterate the fact that people don't understand is you're by yourself with your two horses. So, you yeah. know, why did you feel that you were prepared to do this alone? Cause you are alone besides your two animals. Yeah, at least I was mostly alone. My mom, you know, would sometimes help me with resupplying, especially, you know, she lived in LA. And so for a while there, I was within a couple hours of LA. And so on her weekends from work, you know, we, we planned the start of the ride for her spring break. So she could kind of like meet me, you know, at road crossings and stuff like that for the first two weeks. And then I would see her on weekends. And so it was a nice little weaning process. It wasn't like, right. I just dropped off at the Mexican border was like, well, best of luck to you, child. Um, and so it was nice. I was, I was happy. It was, I don't know if I could have gotten through the desert I, or I know I couldn't have gotten through right. the desert without a level of support. So thankfully I had, you know, some of that, but yeah, on the trail myself, you know, all of that was definitely on my own. 
Um, and I think I felt okay about it because honestly, I had been riding alone basically my entire life. Uh, grew up in LA and there's not a lot of adventurous horse people in LA and none of my friends really rode um, or lived near me. And even at a pretty young age, you know, my mom was more into the showing thing. And so I was riding alone, you know, as early as four, I went mm-hmm. through a pretty good period between like seven and 11, where I didn't do a lot of alone riding. My mom um, had a horse that she would lease that she could come out and ride with me. Um, and then, but then again, once I hit like 11, I was back to riding alone and rode the majority of the time alone for the, my entire, entire life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't have people in college that would ride with me because, you know, they were more arena riders. And I had a very athletic horse who would knock out 15 miles in between classes. And there was not really anyone who could keep up with her or, and she was so competitive <laughs> that she was honestly not fun to ride in the company of other riders because she was having such a miserable time and so (laughs) we just were used to it I don't I never had really ridden with anyone and I kind of you know felt more comfortable in terms of my horse's behavior being on our own so that was most of it was just that was what I was used to so talk about kind of the terrain the stuff that you deal with um along the 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 trail and how you prepare for some of the harder ones that you know your horses are going to experience ironically LA is a surprisingly good place to like train horses it's it's more hilly than people would imagine um and so you know my horses were in pretty good physical shape just because you know we would gain you know almost a thousand feet of elevation every time we rode you know we would have like a decent elevation change and usually at home I was doing a lot more running and on my long distance trips, we're just walking and that kind of like higher intensity riding, um, but less mileage seemed to transfer pretty well to like the longer mileage, but lower intensity. Like they ended up making the, the transition well. Um, and then it was surprisingly rugged in like the Santa Monica mountains of LA where I was riding. We had a lot of rock, um, mm-hmm. a lot of like, you know, scrubby brush. And so they were good sure-footed horses and that ended up being surprisingly well adapted. You know, I'd never had a problem with them, you know, needing any really special work to be ready for it. So I was very fortunate, you know, and I'm always kind of surprised, you know, once I realized how rugged LA was and I was like, oh, wow, it, w- it was surprisingly good training grounds for going out into the mountains. Something I never thought LA would be described as. Yeah, I know. When people find out that I'm from LA, you know, it's very odd. And I definitely got a lot of weird looks when I was trying to somewhat prepare, you know, and was like riding around on the fire roads with, you know, a pack horse toting along and people wondering like, is this some sort of unusual, you know, hobo, you know, like I haven't seen a hobo with a a horse before, but maybe, maybe she just lives out here. I feel like people were more probably thinking that than like, oh yeah, that chick's training. You know, that's probably not what they were thinking. (laughs) That's fantastic. So so you completed the uh, Pacific Crest Trail in 2014, the first time, and then you did it again in 2016. What did you learn from your 2014 uh, trail ride through that you learned that you took with you for your 2016? And then why did you want to do it again? <laughs> Good questions. Um, I wanted to do it the first time I did it, you know, I finished it, but I felt like because I was so unprepared and didn't have, you know, really a conception of what I was going to 
be out there and facing. Um, you know, I made a lot of errors that could have been, you know, more easily avoided through good planning. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of like got to the end and felt like a lot of my success wasn't really my own. It was like the horses and like them somehow being able to, you know, just push through whatever crazy obstacles we had or snow or, you know, lack of really even understanding what kind of nutritional support they needed. Like there was just a lot that was like on the fly. And it's so hard when you're covering that kind of miles to like recover from any tiny error, you know, like your horse loses a little bit too much weight. It is so hard to put weight on them or your horse, you know, loses a shoe and, you know, chips off a bit of its hoof wall. And now it's really hard to get a shoe to stay back on like little, little mistakes really impacts you out there where you don't have a lot of margin for error. And, you know, and I was just kind of like amazed that my horses, you know, were able to like, or especially one um, was able to like, you know, just, you know, the entire time just be such a amazing partner. And I felt like I kind of like wasn't carrying my fair share of the the responsibility in terms of being a good teammate. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And so I wanted to kind of do it again and see if it could be a little bit less type two fun, you know, like not every day have these like crazy highs, but also be crying. You know, I felt like I did that a lot the first time. It was just like, you know, absolutely crazy highs and crazy lows. And I was like, I would like it to be a little bit more, you know, even keel, a little less exciting. Um, And so I did it again, kind of to test if it was possible to anticipate some of the challenges, you know, and avoid them through proper, like, you know, support of like logistics and planning and all that jazz. And it worked. It was definitely a lot better. You know, there's some things you can't plan for, but you can plan for other parts of it. And it does make mm-hmm. a world of difference, you know, for you and for your horse to not have that kind of like anxiety, you know, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do next week? You know, that, so it was a lot better. And it then made me feel a lot more deserving of, you know, like having accomplished something like, oh yeah, I pulled my weight this time. <laughs> I was that good teammate. How long does it, how long did that trail take you from start to finish? Um, the, the border to border ones typically take about five months. Wow. Okay. So then we'll talk about the other border to border to border one you did, which was the continental divide trail, which again is from uh, Mexico to Canada. And then, so once you finished that one in 2017, you became the first person to ride through both the Pacific crest trail and the continental divide trail. So what is the difference between these two? And um, yeah, what was the biggest difference between these two trails that you found? Um, Well, at first I should probably state that I did it in 2018, mostly because I was really lucky that 2018 was such a low snow year. Um, Mm. The Continental Divide Trail would be very, very difficult to do in a high snow year. And like 2017 and 2019 were super high snow years. So I got real lucky that I rode it in 2018. Um, but I scouted it out in 2017. I rode the Colorado Trail kind of to get like an idea of like, what is the uh, the Rockies like versus the West Coast? Because the weather in the summer is a lot more temperamental. And so mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to see what I was signing up for. Um, and so I did test it out and ride a lot of Colorado in 2017, but then did the CDT in 2018. Um, and remind me again what the question was. <laughs> What's the biggest, what was the biggest difference between the two? Ah, biggest difference. The biggest difference was definitely a lot of the weather. The weather's a little bit more tumultuous. Um, you have, you know, the monsoon season 
over in like the Rockies, um, which in like thunderstorms and a lot of that you do not have on the west side. And then the, you know, there's a lot more cross country travel where, you know, the Pacific Crest Trail and you kind of just have to like, you know, head at a certain bearing, like, you know, northwest and, you know, eventually you'll pick up the trail again. And it'll be like that for, you know, a couple hours at a time where you're just kind of like, okay, you know, hopefully we'll find the trail again. And you have like a GPS. So you kind of know where the trail is at the other end and you just like head that general direction. Um, And so that was new. And also there's, you know, a lot more sometimes unexpected obstacles. Like New Mexico is a lot of cattle ranch land and there's just fences everywhere it's just like fence after fence after fence and the hikers can just like you know skirt under them but the horses can so sometimes you know you walk a lot of fence lines because a lot of these are for cattle and a lot of cattle fencing eventually does have these like little you know cowboy gates in the wire and they're not locked or anything but it's a lot of a lot of that and just unusual, unexpected stuff. Like, oh, I wasn't expecting to go through 20 fences today. Um, and and then Colorado's very, very rugged country, uh, very rocky and very steep. It's a lot steeper than what we had faced. So those were some big differences. And then how long does this one take? About five months as well? Yeah, I took um, at one point two weeks off to give them a little break. Um, I, w- I made sure to go through New Mexico early and then I gave them two weeks just to make sure they were gonna be strong going into Colorado. So it took us about five and a half months, but you know, five months of actual riding time. And then talk about the the horses that you travel with. What, what, you know, what kind of horses are they and what makes them um, suit, suited for these um, long trail rides? It's a good question. I, I almost feel like there's, two kinds of horses. There's the very, very rare horse that is just a natural born, you know, long distance horse that has that right mix of like insane drive to cover miles and is hardy. And that was definitely my, uh, my main horse Shyla for many, many, many years until she passed um, two years ago. And, you know, all my other horses have had to kind of adapt and learn and it you know it hasn't been you know if you just throw them into the deep end they don't swim they sink and so it's more of a letting them adjust with you know to what it's like out there especially my pack horse you know he grew up again in LA he had never even eaten like grazed you know on a regular basis he'd always eaten hay and I remember when we were out there the first year he would like pick up these chunks of grass without like ripping the grass from the roots and there'd be these dirt clods in the roots and he would eat it until he got to the dirt and then he'd spit it out and I would spend a lot of my time like hand picking grass for him because it was just like, it's like, this is, this is not time efficient, Dakota. You can't, you know, spit out, you know, your food. Like, this isn't going to work. The city and horse didn't know how to eat grass. I, I, it's bizarre. I know. And it's like, he would eat it, you know, at home, like he would have time for it, but it wasn't effective. And it was even just like adapting to kind of that really nomadic lifestyle of not having a home base. Some horses struggle with that a lot and struggle mm-hmm. with the variability in their environment. And they have to kind of like mentally, you know, let their guard down and realize, oh, hey, you know, I'm not, you know, in danger, you know, I'm still safe. It's a lot, you know, even wild horses have territories. They aren't constantly encountering new environments. And so it's a lot to ask for a horse and they do sometimes have to mentally adapt. So to answer your question about what's a good horse, I think it is, you know, you have to have a horse that does enjoy 
being athletic and enjoy moving. You know, you're, you and your horse are not going to have a fun time if you have to nag it for 3,000 miles, you know, every day, all day long. So a horse that freely enjoys like exploring and moving and exercising, you know, it's like the difference between having like a border collie versus, you know, a chihuahua, you know, like right. you want, you want a, a dog that likes to work. You want a horse that likes to work. Um, and then their body has to be able to hold, you know, hold up to it. They have to have, you know, th- you know, not any, any kind of like build to them that predisposes them to having like a bad knee or to getting sore. And it takes, it can take a while. So it, it can be hard to tell sometimes what horses, you know, aren't, great initially but can be developed into it and I'm currently going through that process I have like eight horses now three of them are babies um and I'm kind of like taking them all out into on little shorter trips and kind of figuring out like okay who you know doesn't want to eat this kind of food you know even palatability of the food matters and so it's like okay you know customizing what food they want to eat and who has certain you know different hoof stuff that I need to be aware of like one of my horses has thinner soles than any of my others. And so he needs a different kind of shoe than anyone else. And those are only kind of the kinds of things you can figure out through trial and error. And my first horses I had before I ever went out anywhere, I'd owned them for years. And I had kind of underappreciated how intimately I knew them and their bodies. And so now that I have all these new horses, I've gotten like five of them are new to me since in just the last like six months. So very, very new relationships. And I'm having to kind of learn all their quirks and all their, you know, individual body needs so that I can be that good teammate, you know, out there and make sure that they're well taken care of. So I'm still learning. I think I have some really good prospects though. (laughs) Um, I have a really strong mule that, you know, has some interesting personality. So a lot of her is me dealing with her personality. She, you know, that saying mules are stubborn is definitely somewhat true. They have an opinion and (laughs) you can't really force them to do anything. You have to like negotiate. Um, And I have some really lovely horses. I rescued an Arabian um, and she's coming along really nicely. Um, I picked up a little four-year-old quarter horse mare that is super cute. And she seems to have a really good heart and really likes to, you know, be out there and explore. So I've got some really exciting partners and I'm feeling very lucky to have moved to the central coast where I have more space than LA, you know, Mm -hmm. moved here this year, which is why I have all these horses now, because now I have a lot more space than I ever did in LA to have, you know, an actual little herd. So you're, you're, you, one of the things, another thing I find, gosh, I find this very interesting. Um, you, you, you do these five month trails, you know, you're by yourself essentially for most of the time with these two horses. What's your favorite part about that? What about that time alone with the two animals made you fall in love with these long distance, uh, wilderness trails it definitely like cements the partnership it can sometimes feel you know when you are riding in a more controlled environment like it's you know like it's kind of just you and you're kind of calling the shots and you you feel like you're in control and you're carrying the team and then it's pretty wild when you get out there in the backcountry and it becomes a much more 50-50 partnership and it Mm -hmm. becomes so much of them also taking care of you or them really kind of like, you know, supporting your harebrained ideas. Like I need you to jump this three foot down tree, pretty please. (laughs) Um, And it's a lot to ask. And you start to realize like really what your relationship is with your animal. And it becomes 
so incredible to really accomplish something hard together and to feel like it's so much more of an accomplishment, you know, than if you'd just done it by yourself, you know, like you somehow also took care of this, you know, thousand pound toddler and were <laughs> able to get them safely there and work with them, you know, like it adds just like this extra dimension of, you know, like you're proud of yourself, you're proud of your teammate. It just makes the whole experience richer, which I really love. Yeah, because I was watching some of the videos on your Instagram and some of these terrains that you go through with your horse, you know, it doesn't like, I mean, from my perspective, it I'm like, she shouldn't be going down there on this horse or like, how does this horse do that? How is there just a trust you've put in these animals because you know them so well or do they just kind of have that, they're just kind of born with that ability just based off because they've done it before? It, they definitely have to somewhat get conditioned to it. Like the Arab I rescued had zero experience with anything outside of a small pen. And so she was super clumsy. I remember when I brought her home, she like tripped, you know, just getting inside the paddock, you know, like, it was like she tripped <laughs> over everything. And so they do have to look, kind of like learn how to use their bodies very, you know, effectively. And definitely some of my horses that haven't been with me for as long, they're definitely not as athletically coordinated as some of like the other ones I have, like my pack horse, you know, is incredibly sure-footed. He doesn't look any different than my other horses, but mm -hmm. that horse never trips. And it's interesting, you know, again, I kind of took it for granted because that's what, I, that's all I had had. And now only recently do I have all these new horses. And then, you know, it's a learning experience for me too, to kind of figure out how can I prepare these horses that haven't been with me and grown up with me for a decade? You know, how can I, you know, accelerate the process so we don't take a decade to right. get back out there. So it's been interesting to, to do that. Um, but a lot of horses are, I think, more capable than people imagine. And I think it's usually kind of like the rider who holds them back. And I think if you get out there and you, you know, the horses will su surprise you. And usually as long as the terrain is not kind of so steep that they can't get up it, horses, um, you know, they can't really lower their front end very well. So if it's too, too steep, you know, that's where they really, really struggle. But most places, you know, if a person can do it on two legs, a horse can probably do it too. Um, so it is, it is miraculous. And I remember all the time on my first ride being like, oh, really like this is this is really where they want horses like I had that thought all the time and the only thing I had in my brain was well you know like there's horse poop someone someone's <laughs> been out here so I'm not the first and like that was probably the only reassuring thought I had was I knew it had been done before right and I knew people rode out here so it's like I know it's possible but yeah my brain too all the time was like nope this doesn't look good this are you sure you know because it was so different from what I had seen. So it was a learning curve and just the reassurance that I wasn't the first was actually very nice. That That's funny that you, you're like, oh, there's poop. Okay. We're good. <laughs> it's a yeah, funny, it was. A funny it was way to like reassure you through uh, seeing other horses, um, bathrooms. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> I know, I'm not sure most people get excited about seeing horse poop on the trails, but I'm like, oh, excellent. <laughs> so what's next? Is there another big trail you'd like to complete. I know you've mentioned the Appalachian Trail. Is that one that's on your list as well? That one is not. That one isn't open to stock. And oh, okay. Um, that one is pr pretty, pretty rugged in terms of there's some really unusual because it's so rocky. There's okay. some really like, you know, there's like stairs and you climb up ropes and oh. that's like a, it's like a, you know, gym course, a lot of the Appalachian Trails. That one's not for horses. Um, is there another trail there? 
I might, I love the PCT. I think probably because it was my first, you know, like, you know, your first love, you always have this little like rose colored mm-hmm. glasses for. So that's kind of like the PCT for me. And I haven't done it since 2016. So I'm thinking of doing that one again, um, as soon as I feel like my horses are ready for it. Um, and then there's a couple other new trails that are like in the process of being a little bit more established um, that I'm kind of hoping will become a bit more safe for horses once they get more like maintenance and attention and regular, you know, care. Um, there's like the Great Divide Trail, which is in Canada, mm-hmm. and they have a, you know, kind of equestrian route um, that hasn't really been tested yet. And so, I'm, you know, I have my debates about whether or not, you know, I don't you know, being first is nice for notoriety. It's not always nice when you're doing it. Um, and I did my own route that I planned from the Grand Canyon to Wyoming. Um, and that was fun. It was kind of nice to do something, you know, that hadn't been written in terms of that exact route. Um, and then there's like, the, there's a couple, there's several national scenic trails, like the Idaho Centennial and the Pacific Northwest Trail that show a lot of promise. I don't think they're ready yet for, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of being safe enough for horses. Um, So I'm kind of waiting to see, you know, as they get more and more popular with the hikers, then they get more attention and more funding and more trail maintenance. And then they can become kind of like more stock friendly. So the Great Divide Trail, Pacific Northwest Trail, and like the um, Idaho Centennial Trail are kind of like all on my radar that I'm very hopeful will become safer for stock. So one the the main reason that I have you on this podcast, obviously I find the your trail riding fascinating, but you are one of three adventure um, ambassadors for Firestone Walker Brewery out in California. How how did this partnership come to be? I I absolutely all the credit goes to my friend Dylan. Um, he, you know, was already working for Firestone and he had known me through, you know, Instagram and we had, you know, already become like real world friends. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when, you know, he started working for Firestone and they were, you know, looking for, you know, adventure, um, I don't know if athletes is the right word for me. I don't feel very athletic sometimes, but yeah, like, you know, someone out there doing interesting things in, you know, the outdoors. Um, he was very kind and like, you know, suggested that they, you know, look into me. And so he, he was the bridge for the connection, um, which I'm so grateful for. And it, you know, was extra nice that I was moving to the central coast anyway. So it makes me feel like I'm nice and close to Firestone Brewery, which is up in this area too. If you're an athlete to me, if that matters. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then how does Firestone uh, Walker's Beer help help fu- fuel your adventures and all your different uh, trail rides? Um, you know, being able to do these kinds of trips, it's the hardest part is because you're traveling, it's really hard to have like a stable income. It's mm-hmm. super hard. I feel like, you know, every single September, I am like, sc- you know, scampering around trying to like, okay, now you have to have, you need to find new jobs again, and you need to find a new source of income again. It's very hard. You know, I don't always know if I'll have enough funding to take the summer off. Um, And so Firestone, you know, because they value my trips and they want to be able for me to keep doing them. And in exchange, I get to help kind of like share, you know, their beer and share, you know, 
content, um, they really help make it possible and provide a little stability to my life and a little less anxiety about being able to, you know, scrape together enough to continue this, you know, unconventional, you know, dreams that I have. So that's really how Firestone helps me. And then I try to help them as much as possible with, you know, giving them, you know, beautiful shots of their beer and amazing places. They <laughs> and, were. You know, I saw some of them. And then you guys, you and Firestone are producing a short film about your, about your writing, obviously. So talk about the film and when it will be released. Um, so the, the film was just released on YouTube and you can, you know, find the links to it either via my Instagram through Rider or on the Firestone website. It's on, it's on YouTube. Um, so you can watch it there. Um, and, uh, sorry, any, I, I feel like I screwed up on that one. <laughs> no, you're fine. It was, it was already released. I did. I, I must've missed it. I knew it was part of what you guys were doing. So, um, just hey, so it, at least I think so. They've been a little, it's been a little confusing because the date has changed a lot. And so even when you asked that, I was like, uh, 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 maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it hasn't been released. So that's why I like stumbled. So I'm like, oh shoot. I think because it's on YouTube, I think technically it's, it's been, it's been released. Okay. So just go onto YouTube and, or through your social media and find it. Um, and then, so what, what are some of your favorite fires, uh, Firestone Walker beers to drink? And then what's your favorite after a long day of riding? Cause I feel like that's a very specific beer that you'd want after a long day of riding. You would think, but it kind of depends on like just how tired I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I think prop it's, I was, I liked sour beers, but I was never like uber, uber into them until kind of, I got sponsored by Firestone and they, you know, started sending me all these varieties and like, they have such a wide range that I felt like I got to try things that I probably never would have. Mm -hmm. Um, like I've never been a big IPA person because usually it's just a little too strong and heavy for me um but I really like their fly jack which is like their light IPA so that's and it's it tastes like the woods you know like that is the part I like about IPAs is I do like the flavor I just don't like the heaviness and so I feel like I get that with their uh fly jack IPA because it's a light IPA mm -hmm. um and it literally tastes like the mountains you know the hops like that's that is what the mountains smell like that is the, the pineiness mountain beer Yep. Yep. And then their sour beers, they have such a crazy variety with so many different flavors, even some that are kind of like, you know, fall feeling or spring feeling. And so I do really love their, their barrel works, um, sour beers. And then I'm also a big stout person. And so in the winter time, you know, love their variety of like stouts and like any kind of stout reporter, you know, is definitely my go-to like winter beer after, you know, coming back from like a long ride. And then besides the next trail, what's, what's next for you in, you know, riding in general or just your journey in life? Do you have anything um, that's coming up that you hope to accomplish or? It's, it's been a little weird. I felt like I kind of gave up the idea of having a set dream for what my life was going to be. <laughs> um, when I just, when I did the PCT again, it was kind of like this big letting go of, this idea of what it was going to be like, you know, I, I was, I thought I was going to, you know, go to grad school and get a more normal job. And I, it took me a long time to quit grad school to do the PCT again, even though I hated it and, you know, didn't want to be there. It was so hard to let go 
and to kind of like surrender to not knowing what was going to happen in the future and to just know that I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know what makes me happy. Mm-hmm. And the best I can do is chase that and hope that I can continue to support that. And so I wish I had a plan. I wish I knew how I was going to make this work long-term or anything like that. And I don't, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying to not know what the next five years is going to be like or right. how I'm going to make it all come together. But so far since 2016, I've been managing to scrape it together. Like every year I'm a little surprised. Um, I'm trying to work on like some forms of kind of, you know, more passive income at the moment, which I think is kind of like the new thing to do. That's the, that's the benefit of the, of the pandemic. We're all right. kind of home and kind of getting a bit more unconventional with our income. So like I'm trying to put out some guidebooks to help people, you know, like learn online. I have a lot of followers in other countries and I've hosted some in-person workshops, but I feel like I can't reach a lot of people that way. So I'm trying to find ways to share resources online and make it more accessible. Um, And then also it would help provide me with some passive income to, you know, continue figuring this out as I go. You mentioned you have a lot of followers overseas. Are there any international trails that you'd like to complete or are there any in general? Yes. Yeah. Good question. I don't know if there's a necessary set trail, but um, I have a friend in New Zealand who just was doing some amazing riding, um, you know, right before the pandemic and, you know, really inspired me to get out there, hopefully sometime to New Zealand and maybe do some trekking there. Um, I love the Scottish Highlands, not so Mm. much the weather, but um, I'm hoping I'll figure it out or tough it out. But I would love, you know, to go to Scotland and spend a couple months just riding around there. Yeah, so there are some places, you know, that I would love to go explore on horseback. It always is now the extra difficulty of I feel like I have these, you know, large fluffy toddlers that right. need me. And it's a little I feel guilty, you know, being like, well, mom, do you mind babysitting for all these months? You know, it's a lot of responsibility. So I probably have to wait until I have the right opportunities in life to make sure that my herd is well looked after while I gallivant off to another country. So I was going to say more of the, uh, the middle aged senior Gillian adventures. <laughs> I was going to say, you can't really take the, your horses with you to Scotland, right? <laughs> I wish, but that would be super expensive. Yes. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> unless I win the lottery, probably not. <laughs> so where can people follow you on social media, see your videos, um, because like I said, I've watched some of your videos on social media. So just plug all your social media. And then again, where people can uh, see the short film that you mentioned. So you can, my best place to follow me would be my Instagram account, which is um, at through T-H-R-U underscore rider. So through rider. Um, And you can find the YouTube link via my Instagram bio or on the Firestone website. And there's also some blogs too that will be posted on Firestone about, you know, my rides, some suggestions about where to go, all that jazz. And then I end all my podcasts with some rapid fire and then two okay. questions. So I'll try to tailor them to you a little bit because they're mostly, <laughs> they're pretty, you'll be able to answer most of them. But so would you prefer a six pack of 12 ounce cans or a four pack of 16 ounce cans? I would prefer the 12 pack. I think Firestone mostly does the 12 packs or the 12 ounces, don't they? 
Yeah, I like the 12 ounces. Yeah, the smaller ones. I'm not, you know, a big, big, I prefer, you know, to enjoy my beer and to have them in small quantities. So you don't find me drinking too many, like, even low, low alcohol ones. Like I like, I like to have a good drink, but I don't need a lot of it. <laughs> and then if you're drinking straight from it, do you prefer a bottle or a can? Bottle. Uh, do you prefer the New England or West Coast IPAs? Like the hazies or um, the more American style IPA? That's true. I think I prefer the East Coast ones. And then I know this is a tough one for you, but stout or porter? Oh gosh, wow. <sighs> Probably stout. Probably go with a stout. Uh, Gosa or Berlin or Weiss? Mm, Berlin. Um, seltzer or cider? Ooh, cider. Cider. Um, what's the favorite along the trail? What's your favorite city you've like overnighted in or stayed in? <laughs> There's not too many. There's literally only three that the trail goes goes through, but they are mm -hmm. so cute. Um, well, just name all three of those. <laughs> you have like Agua Dulce, you have Belden, and Belden is sick. Belden is like 14 people, but they throw these like wild raves. And so I literally rode in there into a rave. So that one, that one is what obviously state, my what favorite. What state's that in? California. All California. of them are in California. California. But Belden. Belden is like this like secret rager tiny town in the mountains. So that place is crazy. And then Syed Valley has like the nicest, nicest people. And then I think you mentioned before, well, what's your go-to beer at Firestone right now? My go-to would probably be any of their barrel works, their sours. Um, it's springtime and like, it just feels right to be drinking like a sour beer. Right. And then, so I usually ask if you could go on a beer vacation, where would it be and why? We'll change it. If you could go any like horse riding trail adventure vacation right now, where would it be and why? Can be anywhere and COVID uh, is not an issue. Okay. Well, yeah, if, if I had the amazing mon money and ability to, I would love to take my horses to New Zealand. That would be, that'd be my go-to place. And then who would you most love to have a beer with? If you could sit oh, down at the local, goodness. local bar and have a beer with anybody, who would it be? Can they be alive or dead? Yeah. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Ooh. I think that guy was like such a badass. So I would totally love to have a beer with Theodore Roosevelt. I love that answer. And then, okay, I, well, let's make it, we'll make it, I'll make you tell me a person who's alive too. <laughs> oh, okay. Person who's alive. I have a lot of friends on Instagram that I haven't gotten to have a beer with. They're all virtual. Um, and I'm super excited that my friend Jess Goodlett is coming to, uh, ride the Pacific Crest Trail 2021 and I've been friends with her for years and I'm literally so excited for her to come so I can bring her beer on the trail and you know help her in like the desert sections uh -huh. and so I'm, I'm probably the most excited to have a beer with her at the moment honestly. That makes sense a lot of people are like my family because I haven't seen them and I'm like oh yeah that's that's very important right now because a lot of us are all <laughs> it is. I know we all have probably different choices at the moment right now. But I like Teddy Roosevelt that's a good answer. And my dad, I think, like, I grew up with Teddy Roosevelt, like, memorabilia everywhere. My dad has been a huge fan. So it's like, you know, we had teddy bears all over the house and, like, mugs with teddy faces on them. So I grew up supposed to be worshiping Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> well, Gillian, I really appreciate it. I think what you do is fascinating, and I hope you never have to stop 
Um, definitely go check out our Instagram. I got lost on there one day, just watching all the videos and looking at all the amazing views that you get to see while riding. And as someone who is in Kentucky and is around horses and appreciates them, it's amazing to see something a little bit different than just them running around in circles on a track. So thank you so much for coming on and um, enjoy you know, the rest of your day. And I can't wait to see what's next for you. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome. This was an absolute blast.